Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles to optimise human performance. On today's episode, we have Steph Lazarchuk, researcher and lecturer in sports rehabilitation, with her area of expertise being hamstring injury and return to sport. Hamstring injuries are one of the most frustrating injuries for athletes because if they're not treated with the appropriate exercise protocols and progressions, they're likely to reoccur. This is particularly relevant for athletes whose sports require high levels of hamstring strength and contraction velocities such as sprinting. In this episode, Steph discusses the role of the hamstring muscle, determines how it can be susceptible to injury and how strength, range and high speed running are all components of an effective hamstring rehab protocol. In short, if you work with or compete in a sport which involves running, you need to listen to this episode. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube. So here is Steph Lazarchuk. Hey Steph, how are we? I'm good, Bill. How are you? I'm um, not too bad. Thank you so much for coming on the Progress Theory. Thanks for having me. So now I, well, I want to discuss a number of injuries and return to prey protocols on the Progress Theory, and I was starting to think, okay, let's make a little a list of the most common injuries that I think would be really good to speak to people and get some take home messages that people can implement them into their own rehab or their own training, and. The four key ones that popped up for me were the usual like ACL, because everyone talks about the ACL, shoulder impingement, low back problems, and the hamstrings. I was like, okay, hamstrings is a topic. Who best to speak to about hamstrings? Who knows the most about hamstrings that I know? I was like, Steph. Right. Steph is coming on the pro- progress theory. <laughs> I love it. And um, yeah, hopefully I'll uh, keep everyone engaged. And um, like I said earlier, I, I can waffle on about hamstrings all day. So if we get to a point where you need to cut me off, just cut me off. <laughs> no, no, go for it. Just shower your knowledge. Before we go into discussing hamstrings, let's uh, tell us a bit more about yourself. So by trade, I'm a sport rehabilitator, been a practitioner for well, about a decade, and a decade, yeah, it would have been 2010 when I graduated initially. Separately, in terms of education, I've then done a master's in SNC, as Phil well knows, because Phil was one of our gurus, and also a master's by research in predominantly in sports science, where we were investigating specifically uh, kicking injuries and the dynamics of sort of muscle tendon units within rugby union. In terms of clinical practice, I've done a few different things. So I've worked in football, I've worked in rugby, cricket, ice hockey, private clinics. I was an ERI, so an exercise rehabilitation instructor, uh, as a contractor for the military for three years. I've more recently done a little bit in pro baseball. So I've spent a little bit of time working with a couple of teams. 
um, and passing on some knowledge around hamstrings there as well, uh, which has been interesting given that obviously baseball is not really a huge thing over here. So that's been an upward Hmm. learning curve. Um, And currently I am doing some rehab with amputees a couple of times a week and then uh, also doing my PhD, which is predominantly around hamstring injuries, uh, more with a focus on the role of the tendon and how that might adapt to different exercises. So that's the, the Cliff Notes version of me, I guess. That's a wealth of experience with a lot of different populations. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know, I, I knew it was extensive, but I didn't know you worked in so many different sports. Yeah, I was always interested in working in sports anyway. And I'm what my PE teachers back in school would have described as practically challenged. I'm more used to people on my side of the touchline than their side of the touchline, which mm. is fine by me. I quite enjoy being part of the, the team from that aspect anyway. But you just kind of pick things up as you go and then you meet somebody and then, oh, I'm no place. And could you come and help us out with this? And then you end up somewhere else and then, you know, mm. you just accumulate people a long way. Yeah, yeah. Was it from this wealth of experience which led you towards hamstring uh, research? Yeah, well, hammies are a problem in pretty much all of the sports I just listed. Not quite so much in ice hockey, but all of the other predominantly field-based sports, should we say, they're a, a huge issue with And even with something like baseball, which was a surprise to me when I started digging into some of these stats, it's their number one injury, basically. It's the most frequent injury that they sustain, which you wouldn't think given that, Hmm. you know, you think about baseball as a European and go throwing, so arms and basically batting, hitting, which Hmm. is, you know, also relatively like arms and body trunk. But yeah, there are a lot of hammy injuries in the MLB, so should keep us occupied for a little while yeah certainly well let's let's start at the beginning then so i'm assuming most people know what the hamstrings are the muscle at the back of the thigh but would you be able to go in a little bit more detail as to like what are what is the function of the hamstrings and then why does this make them so susceptible to injury yeah sure so the primary function of the hamstrings is obviously to produce movement so it produces knee flexion so the bending of the knee and also hip extension where the hip's coming backwards behind you. And those are the two large roles. And because it does those two things, it obviously helps with propulsion of you moving forward. So whether that's you walking or whether that's you running, they will have to kick in and they will help move you forwards. When you start getting around to um, high-speed running, the hamstrings are a lot more active than they would be if you were just walking. And so there's a lot of force that they are trying to produce and then also attenuate as the foot hits the floor and the leg swings through and all sorts of things as you're going through that. Their secondary functions, and these are our, what we would call our biarticular hamstrings, so the ones that cross both the knee and the hip, they also have a function around knee control. So we know that if the tibia, which is the, basically the shin bone, is moving forward, the hamstrings can help to pull it back, which helps with control and protection of things like the ACL within the knee. It also helps with rotation of that bone as well. So if you think of it like reins on a, a horse, if you pull the reins one way, then the bone will rotate that way. And if you pull the other way, they will rotate the other way. So obviously, while you're doing things like running and change of direction over different um, surfaces, potentially as well, then they have a role throughout that. We do tend to see that in the lower limb, the, the leg, that anything that's biarticular, so three of the hamstrings are biarticular, rectus femoris, which is uh, one of the quads on the front of the thigh, 
um, and gastrocnemius, which is the main calf muscle, that's biarticular as well. They the, tend to be the sites that pick up these muscle strains uh, where there is some sort of like, damage to fibres where they're being torn. So it seems to be a, a factor of having to do multiple things all at the same time. And I guess as humans, we can relate to that, right? If you start having to multitask and there's too many things going on, Hmm. something gets dropped. And so partly we think that maybe that's why they end up getting injured. There's just so much going on. There's force coming from different areas. Things are being pulled in different directions. And then ultimately, at some point, something goes pop. It's the easy version anyway. No, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I remember hearing in a lecture of yours that analogy of the hamstrings acting like reins on a horse. And if you bend your knee and kind of move your hands back and forth... And then as you do that, you sort of rotate the knee, which is kind of rotating the shin bone and your foot turns in and out like it. You can really understand just how important the hamstrings are for moving that portion of the leg. Uh, and then when you see that, you think, oh, it's not just something that's just going to sort of flex the knee and just do those basic movements. It actually, its role is very much multifactorial in this, in this sense. And then when you think about it in terms of movement, especially if you link it back to, I know, field sports and all the things you described, change of direction, turning, all of those sorts of things, you think, oh, the hamstrings are really, really such a vital muscle, aside from the, the usual things that you're kind of familiar with, what it, what it does. No wonder it gets injured all the time. And then there's other <laughs> things to factor in, you know, speed of contraction, all of those sorts of things. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Impressive muscle. I can see why... Uh, you've had to deal with so many hamstring injuries. Yeah, across all those sports, I've seen a fair few. And then obviously yeah, it just builds and you start to see the different elements of research that come out and you think, oh, that's cool. And then you start asking questions and you get to a point, right, when it's, this is where the PhD comes in, where you go, oh, nobody knows the answer mm. to that question. Maybe we should find out. And that's then what you do. So that's where we are now. Perfect way that research should act. Just find out questions, realise you don't have the answer and then... Uh, <laughs> do what you can to answer those questions. For sure. So what are the most common hamstring injuries? You talked about muscle strains. Would you be able to elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. So if you think about the back of the thigh, we know we've got the ischial tuberosity, which is the bony bit under your bum right at the top. That's where the hamstrings, the biarticular hamstrings start from. You have two that then run down the inside of the thigh or towards the inside of the thigh and to the back and inside of the knee. And then you've got one that goes towards the outside. The one that goes towards the outside is called biceps femoris. Um, and that's where we pick up the majority of the sprint-related injuries, high-speed running injuries. When we're running, we think that it might be something to do with, as you swing your leg through, that muscle has to try and control the knee and has to slow down the shin, right? So the shin's firing through. You don't want it to kick out in front of you. That would look ridiculous for a start and also be detrimental to your performance because you need to bring the foot back down to the floor. And so that contraction, while it's lengthening, plus it then needing as soon as you touch the floor in early stance to have to contract concentrically and shorten to propel you forward, at some point around that kind of time frame, it seems to be susceptible. You can get um, strains in the two on the inside, so semimembranosis and semitendinosis. They tend to be associated more with what we would call a stretch-type injury rather than a sprint-type injury. And that might be from you know, things like dancing, gymnastics. It might just be something as simple as somebody has slipped and the legs moved out rapidly 
in front of them. And that tends to be the mechanism where they get injured. But the majority of our injuries are in biceps fem mm. and tend to be related to the, that sprint type injury. So it can, there's an element of damage that you'll get with it with a muscle strain. And it depends on the location as to like how we would then classify it as a practitioner. So you can have some injuries that are just purely within the muscle fibers themselves. You can have some that are a little bit in the muscle fibers, but also in a bit of the tendon. So the tendon is what joins the muscle to the bone. And we have quite an extensive tendon through biceps fem. So it's not just tendon, muscle, tendon. The tendon itself overlaps quite significantly. And so in this element through there, we also then have what we'd call either an intramuscular tendon or an aponeurosis. You see it written down in different ways. It's basically the same thing. It just allows the muscle fibers to come off from there rather than it just trying to attach to one tiny point at the top. And we see a lot of injuries around that musculotendinous junction where those two elements join. You can have injuries like that are more within the tendon itself and not so much within the muscle fibres. I'd say the majority of them, though, tend to be around that MTJ, the musculotendinous junction. That's predominantly what you'll see when people get MRIs, things like that. And basically what it is, is it's just... Uh, like a discontinuity of the fibres. So they've just kind of broken in some way, they move apart a little bit, and then effectively as you're recovering, everything has to scar back together and then you make that scar stronger and stronger as you do your rehab. And that's kind of the gist of muscle strains. Okay. Can these musculoskeletal tendinous junctions also rupture? They can, yeah. It kind of depends. If you're going to injure your hamstring where something ruptures, it could happen at the MTJ, but it can also happen further up. So particularly when you're an adult versus a child. So when you're a child and your bones are a little bit more malleable and a bit softer, you can end up with what we would call an avulsion fracture at that ischial tuberosity, that bony bit under your bum, where basically the muscle and the tendon tissue is stronger than the bony tissue. You have a real heavy force. So it might be something like Imagine somebody has landed from a jump and then they've just folded forwards. So they're really bending from the hip with the knee straight. Everything then goes on stretch and it just pulls a chunk of the bone away from the ischial tuberosity. Wow. Alternatively, if you're an adult and your skeleton has matured, so the bone is now much harder, it won't fracture. And what you'll end up with is the proximal tendon, so the tendon at the top, that will rupture instead of the bone, basically. So... Um, if you're going to rupture something, it tends to be higher up. There have been some incidences of the distal tendon, so the ones down at the back of the knee, those being the ones that rupture instead. I've only ever really heard of those in baseball, and I'm not entirely sure how those happen, but I would imagine it's more of like, a, again, a stretch type activity. Um, you could totally see it, right? If somebody's running full pelt into a base, they slide in, their foot gets stuck, their knees extended, their hips flexed again, because they're basically sitting down, those same kind of uh, mechanisms. And I guess it just depends on people's, I guess, what's the best way of phrasing it? Like the strength of their tissues as well and where they're more robust in one area than another. And that ultimately, if somebody's a bit less robust in one section, then that's probably going to be the bit that goes. But you can get some pretty heavy MTJ tears as well that can extend quite far down so like along the line of the muscle almost yeah yeah so if you think the two are touching you and you have like little uh, what we'd call interdigitations where the muscle fibers and the tendon fibers basically sit like that they're not perfectly flat against each other but you can have a separation of those when you get that that rupture or not rupture but tear at 
the MTJ. Wow. The common theme, it seems, is whether it's a strain or a tear, different types of tears, it's usually because some actions happened and the hamstring is usually extended at the knee and flexed at the hip so the, the hamstring is suddenly lengthened. And whether that's deliberate because of like sprinting or it's uh, not deliberate, so like a poor landing if it's more proximal or a sudden slip, for example. But the, the theme is still the same. It's that hamstring's just suddenly shot out and it's completely lengthened. Uh, and then all of a sudden it puts it at a risk of injury. Yeah, definitely. It's always seems to be in the lengthened state. You don't tend to pick up strains in any muscle really when it's in its shortened state so much mm. and then the muscle is either having to absorb a lot of force or trying to create force um, while it's in that length and position and both of those obviously you're getting force transmission through these different fibers so yeah definitely a theme okay so let's assume that i'm your athlete what kind of things could you do with me from a training perspective to determine if I may be at risk of experiencing a hamstring injury? Yeah, there's um, a few quite well-recognised injury risk factors for hammy strains. So there are non-modifiable ones that we can't change, and then there are modifiable ones which we can attempt to change anyway. So our non-modifiable ones would be things like age. As you tend to get a little bit older, you generally increase your risk of a lot of injuries, but also hamstring strains. Um, and also past medical hmm. history. So any time somebody picks up an injury, inevitably in the short term creates some kind of, I guess, weakness is probably the simplest term to apply to it in that area. Hmm. Obviously, you rehab to try and train out of that and to get it back to it as, as good a shape as possible and preferably even better than when you got injured in the first place uh, so that you're trying to negate anything that was a problem beforehand that led to you getting injured. And we know that if somebody's mm. had a hamstring injury before, they're more at risk of having another hamstring injury. We also know that, that if somebody's had a history of an ACL injury, um, that that seems to place them at greater risk of hamstring strain. We don't necessarily know why. It could be to do with the fact that as you're, you rupture a ligament and then the receptors in the ligament don't pick up information as well. And so the control around the knee is different. And obviously we know that having have to try and control around the knee. And so there's potential then for that to increase the risk of injury. Uh, if you've got a history of calf strains as well, that also seems to be potentially problematic as well. And again, it might be to do with the knee because gastroc crosses the knee, mm. the hamstrings cross the knee, you've got this crossover effect. And it's all within that one chain sort of down the back of the leg as well. Those are things that we would take into account. Now, we can't change those, but we need to be aware of them so that we can then go, okay, well, maybe if somebody's got some of those factors, they're a little bit older, they've got some of these previous injuries, we need to do a bit more with them in order to try and mitigate their risk of injury. So then we'd start looking at things like strength is a, a classic one for pretty much any injury within the body and hamstrings are no different. There's a few different ways that you can look at strength. So it might be that, you know, you do your typical sort of rep max testing, 1RM, 5RM, 3RM, whatever suits your population that you've got if you're a practitioner or a coach. And also it depends on the equipment you've got available. If you only have access to a gym, then that's probably a good way of looking at somebody's strength. So you can stick them on the, like the leg curls, the knee flexions, and see what they can shift one side versus the other. Are they symmetrical? Are they not? There are various specialist bits of equipment, so things that specifically look at the eccentric strength 
something like a Nord board, which people might have heard of. There are other brands available, but essentially that looks at the strength through the lengthening phase, mm. which was is a potentially our problem area. We can do things with handheld dynamometry, which are basically little units that we can look at somebody's isometric strength. So we can put them in a position and then see what level of force they can basically tolerate in that one position. If you're fancy and you've got access to it, you can have isokinetic dynamometry. But none of those elements just by themselves give us the the big picture. We can't test somebody's strength and go, they're going to get injured. They're not. It's base. You'd be better off flipping a coin, um, frankly. For it doesn't mean we then just throw it out because in combination with some of these other factors, that might then still be part of our bigger picture. We can do things uh, if we've got ultrasound available to look at people's internal architecture. So people's muscle bulk is obviously a factor of potentially, you know, again, you can look at it in terms of symmetry, left versus right. If somebody's got huge muscles on one leg and then tiny muscles on the other side, then we might want to try and even them up a little bit. But we can also then look within the muscle at how basically the fibers line up and how long they are. And that seems to be correlated with potentially risk of injury as well. If you don't have access to being able to do that, we tend to assume that everybody's short unless proven otherwise and try and do things that would potentially improve that aspect of their muscle architecture. Their exposure to high-speed running, particularly if they're a field athlete, is going to be important. So it's a little bit Goldilocks if you don't do anything and you don't ever practice running fast and then you get asked to run fast, then you're underprepared. You don't want to be constantly running fast and then in a match mm. have to do it and then that can cause problems as well. You don't want to overprepare. You want to be somewhere in the middle and have it just right. Exactly what just right is for a lot of people is like that's so wide. It depends on your sport. It depends on your position. It depends on lots of things, right? So I can't sit here and say everybody should do this distance at this speed and that will just hmm. like solve everything. It's not how that works. But, you know, if you're expecting to be able to do something, whether it's running, whether it's kicking, whatever, you need to practice doing it at some point during the training. So that's a, a big element there. Um, mm. People often ask about flexibility and mobility. There is some suggestion that if you've got good ankle range and you've got good knee range of motion, that that's preferable. If you've got deficits in terms of dorsiflexion, so when the knee's sort of coming over the foot and you're closing down the ankle joint, that might be problematic to a small extent. It's kind of a, a very weak predictor of hamstring injuries. Um, so it's something that you'd want to tick off but it's not going to be your main focus. You're not, you're not going to just hammer mm. loads of stretches for the ankle and for the knee and for the hamstrings and expect that to solve the problem. It's something that you'd absolutely feed into, you know, warm-up elements or just your general cool-down just to make sure that, you know, you're, you're constantly ticking it over and that it's not an issue. And then you can kind of wipe that off the table. We also think about sort of what we would call prolonged neurological deficits, which basically is a fancy terminology for there's an element of something not working correctly from the nervous system, which passes the messages, electrical messages to the muscle in order to make it fire. And it's not just the muscle, it helps to control like reflexes and all of the things that people will probably be aware of anyway. But what we know is if somebody's had a history of hamstring strain, that those might have dropped off a little bit. So 
um, in terms of the way that their muscle fires and the reflex action of the actual muscle fibers so that they don't overstretch. And also the stretch reflex for the tendons that are associated with those muscles as well. And we know that those are sort of what we've called mediated centrally. So those are controlled at a spinal cord level rather than just within the muscle itself. So even though we've had this local tissue damage and we want to repair that, we want to strengthen that, we have to be aware of some training strategies that are going to test the neurological symptoms as well and test that system and try and make that a little bit more robust in a certain way, but also that it's just firing correctly and that it's firing effectively. And you know, we want to train all aspects of the body mm. as opposed to just this one area. If you just stick locally, then it doesn't always work. You need to do a little bit of everything, basically. There's also arguments around mm. people's running styles as well and their actual mechanics when they're running. I'm currently sitting on the side of the fence that I don't tend to worry about it too much, but it's very much context-driven. So if I've got you know somebody who's maybe like 17, 18, they're still developing, you look at the move and you go, they could move better then you're potentially looking at it from a performance aspect anyway, but you're also maybe trying to like tighten things up basically in terms of the way they're moving. But if you've got somebody who's been playing high-level sport for the best part of 10 years, they're probably pretty well ingrained in their strategies and how they move. That's probably, again, not going to be my first point of call of going, okay, well, I'm going to change the way that they run because I think that's a problem. If they're quite ingrained and nobody's tried to change the way they've run and they've just stuck with the same kind of pattern that's probably not the thing that's altered in the immediate environment something else has changed we need to find that thing solve that problem first before I worry about trying to manipulate how exactly how people are moving (laughs) that is very very multifactorial and you can really see just how many things can affect the hamstrings and you know how they're firing how strong they are all sorts of things I want to kind of create like a bit of a question just to see a bit more about your approach. So say that I've, I'm weak in one hamstring or I have had a tear, so it's weak because of that. And we know we want to develop strength. You know, this could be a neurological issue if, if it's been a repeat injury, uh, as, as you described, but I want yeah. to get back to high speed running. I mean, it's going to be very individualized, but is there a kind of sequential thing that of aspects you might look to train in order to try and get them to a point where they can do high speed running yes to a certain extent like that all of those risk factors are then also risk factors for secondary injury so all of those things we still need to address so we still need to make people stronger make sure their range of motion is good that we're getting that back because after you've been injured in the first instance if you think about trying to stretch something if anybody's had a muscle strain before, if you try and put that muscle on stretch, generally it's quite sore in the early stages, particularly. Mm. Um, and so people avoid that and then they don't necessarily have full range of motion. So that's something that we would want to get back. There's some evidence that you should consider doing some element of strength training early. If we think about it in terms of healing time scales, your average return to play time um, in pro level sport. So like imagine your football player picking up a hammy injury. It generally seems to be around about three weeks-ish, give or take. Some people come back earlier, some people come back later. If you think about three weeks as your timescale, that's not enough time for you to make real physiological change that you can see within a muscle or within a tendon. 
you will start the process, absolutely. And some things will normalise, like range of motion normalises quite quickly. You start getting people a bit more active. And after the first couple of days where they're quite sore, then you can really kind of go to town on that to a certain extent. You know, you're not ramming people through range, but you're gently working through mobility and range and including that as part of your training mm. strategies. But most people tolerate some element of strength training quite well early on. Historically, people have gone, okay, well, we'll do things isometrically in sort of a, a neutral range or a, the middle range. So nothing's too on stretch. It's not too short. It's somewhere in the middle. And the isometrics is where you're pressing and the muscle length doesn't change. And then we'll move on to doing some concentric, eccentric, so shortening and lengthening mm. type activity through a restricted range. And then we'll go on to doing the lengthening stuff. And I think a better approach is to kind of do all of those things at the same time. But you're doing it based on tolerance. You know, you're not necessarily suggesting that somebody's going to go and do a maximum effort, eccentric, fast contraction on day one. You're going to build people into that. But doing some bilateral, so two-leg mm. eccentric work might actually be quite well tolerated in a lot of people. And then that provides a stimulus that we know is favourable for creating positive adaptation in the hamstrings. So whether that's specifically for the architecture or we're trying to build strength, it has that dual element. We also know that eccentric training has almost a in some ways, like a greater effect on the nervous system and how things get transmitted. And you have a crossover effect between legs as well. And that's been proven in other injuries. So it's a principle that we can at least try and take forward. We're extrapolating a little bit uh, because we don't have that direct information for the hamstrings. But it's a principle that we can try and apply anyway. Mm. It's less of a case of we have to do this, then we do this, then we do this. It's more of you can kind of do everything at the same time but you're building up people's, like the load that people are under and also the speed of contraction that people would be doing. So we're not going to sprint someone on day one, but if they can tolerate it, you might have them doing fast walking or you might have them doing a little jock. And then as you move through the next few days, the next couple of weeks, then you start to increase that, like the load that's going through them. We might move them from just like a gentle jog into some more kind of heavier plyometric type actions so like scissor runs or bounding before we maybe get them to do a full out sprint. So we're starting to, you know, we're making it snappier with what they're doing, but we're also controlling the number of like foot contacts or we're controlling the distance. Absolutely. It's definitely individualized and dependent on people's sport, but what can they do rather than what can't they do? Start with that and then build them back towards doing mm whatever it is that the task is that they need for their sport, whether it's high-speed running, kicking, both in some sports, you know, those are the kind of the basic principles. And I appreciate that doesn't necessarily give people a guide of going, well, you have to do this. And then once you've ticked that box, because everything overlaps anyway, like I said, people's flexibility and mobility normalizes quite quickly. So focusing on that first before you do other things, mm. it doesn't necessarily do them the greatest of services, basically. It does them a bit of a disservice, really, because you could feed other things in earlier that would accelerate their return to play rather than just letting it drift and then having to climb an extra hill before the mountain in order to get them back to where they would have been five days prior. Things degrade quite quickly. So the more you can feed in earlier, kind of the better, without going too mm. far. If it hurts, stop it. Mm. I, I think there's loads of take-home messages there. 
It's because, you know, at first we kind of described, okay, do you work on different types of contractions? You focus on this, then you focus on this, and then you focus on this. And really what you're saying, we need more of a concurrent approach. Uh, and the things that are driving the progressions are usually the intensity of the movement. So the intensity, you know, leading up to something that's very intense, like high speed running, and also the complexity of the movement. Because if the hamstring has dual roles, uh, we need to build the complexity so it's able to do those dual roles by the time it's reaching exercises that are of high intensity. So, I th yeah, I think there's loads of take-home messages. I think that's very clear. Yeah, and then even within running, like if you take that as one standalone element, yes, we're building up, like say, the intensity and the speeds at which maybe we're moving, but also because it has that those multiple roles, it's not just linear. We're probably going to start people off on like a linear run, just aiming to go straight ahead of them. But then we need to feed in being able to do curvilinear runs. And then you're going to do that before you start to do change of direction. And then, you know, you take out the element of them planning their movement through the change of direction and making it more agility-based. You know, there are still those kind of sequences that you would follow. Like I say, it just depends on how people tolerate each of those stages as to when you start to push them on. So being aware of different types of pain, like if you've got a sharp stabbing pain that feels like when you tore your hamstring, then clearly you're going to back off. Hmm. You've just got a little bit of an ache you can kind of feel it just a little bit. You know, your classic scale of nothing is like zero is no pain at all. Ten is the worst pain you've ever felt. If it's like a, a three or a four, then we're probably not going to push it too far beyond that. But that's okay. Most people are a little bit sore when they do exercise or after they do exercise. If we're getting like five, six, seven, and like I say, it's that sharp pain, that's more problematic. So you don't have to be afraid of pain. You've just got to know if it's just uncomfortable or if it hurts. If it hurts, back off. <laughs> what are common mistakes people make when training hamstrings? I think generally, whether it's for potentially either for performance, whether it's for injury prevention or injury rehab, people don't necessarily think about the adaptation that they're trying to create. And I appreciate this is now getting a little bit geeky in terms of <laughs> coaching aspects and practitioners. No, go full geek. That's absolutely fine. You need to think about what the adaptation you're trying to create is first so that you know what it overall you're trying to achieve. Now, obviously, most people are going to do some form of like needs analysis. These people need to be able to run fast. They need to be able to kick. They need to be able to change direction quickly. They need to be able to do all of these different things. And then you break down that skill and go, okay, what feeds into that? Is it strength? Is it reactivity? Like whatever those elements are, right? You don't necessarily just train the skill. At some point, you will. But in order to build people back up to being able to do the skill if they've been injured, you need to create the adaptation. Now, it's a stimulus that's going to create the adaptation. So is it that they need to lift heavy? Is it that they need to lift moderately but move it fast? Like, What is it that they actually need in order to create the change? And then you pick the exercise that delivers the stimulus that creates the adaptation. I think too often... People go, well, I like these exercises. I'm going to put these exercises in. Or I know this is a hamstring exercise, so it should go in. But they don't think about necessarily why am I choosing that exercise and why am mm. I prescribing it in that manner? Why am I choosing that contraction mode or these many reps, these many sets or manipulating rest periods and things like that? All of those different elements create the change. So I think if you're working with athletes, you need to be really, really clear about what 
adaptation am I trying to drive? It's why we, there's a lot of arguments around the use of specific exercises in terms of the hamstrings. So some people say, should absolutely do Nordics. Um, some people absolutely hate them. The point of doing a Nordic and Calia is that I do use them, is that you're providing a very heavy eccentric stimulus mm. to the muscle. You're not doing it because you like a Nordic. And if you are prescribing it because you like them, you're probably prescribing with the wrong thing in mind. It doesn't matter to me if other people also prescribe Nordics. If they know that the stimulus needs to be a heavy eccentric, as long mm. as they pick the exercise that delivers that stimulus, doesn't matter. We talk about the fact that these are biarticular muscles or Nordic predominantly loads from the knee. So you probably are going to want to have something else in there as well that loads from the hip. And that's absolutely fine. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you also include different contraction modes? You know, not everything we do is eccentric. There are going to be times where we need a concentric phase as well. If we're going for more power development, then clearly we're going to have to feed that in as well. You can't just prescribe one action. It's, it's almost what people say is these researchers that are creating this are saying you should only do Nordics. And that's not what they say at all. It's what people say to try and discredit them. But those words, will ne- you will never hear them come out of their mouths. The key is that you have a well-rounded program that includes appropriate stimuluses. And if you're looking to try and change something like eccentric strength capacity and muscle architecture, we know a heavy eccentric stimulus promotes that. So you're going to include that in some way. Whatever the exercise choice is, up to you. Don't care if it's knee curls, RDLs, Nordics, whatever. Pick something that delivers the stimulus that creates the adaptation. That's probably the key to a lot of this. And that's probably where a lot of the mistakes get made, I would suggest anyway. I also think people often try and be fancy when they don't need to be. Like nail the fundamentals first. If you're going to load heavy and you're going to do strength training, then do the strength training. It doesn't need to be bells and whistles and we're going to throw in some unstable surfaces here and make climb up some stairs on that. Like that's something else, right? What's the principle? Apply the principle. Then make it fancy afterwards. It's like the classic, um, like the one percenters in, that people talk about in pro sport. It doesn't matter if you nail the one percent if you haven't done the 99% right first. Get the fundamentals in place mm. and then go for it. Be as creative as you like. I was going to ask for the next question. If you could provide like three tips for anyone looking to improve hamstring strength. I mean, that's quite a broad question. Uh, but I feel like the three tips were in that perfect answer you've just given. Would you be able to like list those three tips? Like, you know, short, sharp. If you want to improve uh, your hamstring training, follow these three tips and it will improve dramatically. Yeah. So load from both ends. Load at the knee and load at the hip. Have mm. some heavy loading in there at some point because we know that that's beneficial for reducing injury risk. Run fast and regularly and probably add the regularly onto your loading ah. as well. So ultimately, those are probably my... If I had to boil it down to just three, those are probably the three. Yeah. Load at both ends. Yeah. Load heavy yeah. and run fast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're wicked. And funny enough, when I put questions out to Instagram, the main question that came back was from Kieran Moore, who said, would you recommend max velocity sprinting for hamstring health in athletes? Ultimately, 100%. that's like number three in your, your <laughs> top three. Yeah, 
100%. To the point where people aren't doing that enough. I, yeah, I think particularly at lower levels, then that's stuff that doesn't get covered. I think at the highest level of sports, then people are a bit more aware of it. You know, you'll see people, you quite often see it in football, right? After a game, there will still be some players that go out and they do sprints because maybe they only played 20 minutes. Maybe they didn't get on at all, but they need that exposure through that session mm. in order to allow them to kind of spread it out across the week which I think is really important. So yeah, you definitely need people sprinting at max velocity. How you go about determining whether they are sprinting at max velocity depends on the environment you're in. If you've got GPS data and you know that somebody's hitting this value in the middle of a match and then in training, they're like, yeah, 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 yeah I'm sprinting. You're like, you're like 60% of your max, then you can maybe push them on a little bit. Hmm. If you don't have access to any of that, then... There's almost an element of kind of coach's eye, but you can get people to you know, give you classic like RPE type values to have a, a, a subjective estimate of where they are. So the short answer is yes, Kieran, I do recommend that. Keep sprinting. But that's yeah, great ideas around, you know, people might think, oh, I don't know where to start with sprinting. Do I just go and do a load of 100 meter yeah. sprints? But ultimately what you're saying is, okay, if you don't have the equipment like GPS, that sort of thing, you can still just go through a rating of perceived exertion. So like, let's say out of 10, you know what a 10 is because that is going to be like your full out sprint. Uh, and you can do it like you would if you're loading a squat, you know, you wouldn't always go up to your one repetition maximum, um, but you can do 80%, 70%. And, you know, sometimes you will require you to go 10 out of 10, but that just allows you to develop that stimulus to give your hamstrings the necessary loading and forces for it to adapt yeah for sure so keep sprinting (laughs) (laughs) Steph that was absolutely brilliant thank you very much where can people get hold of you if they want to learn more about uh, hamstrings that sort of thing Uh, yeah so I generally to be honest there's not much point in following me on Instagram unless you want to look at holiday pictures Mm. that's pretty much what I go for there most of my work stuff is over on Twitter so it's at Steph Laz L-A-Z underscore so you can get me there or LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. As long as you've got the correct spelling, you'll be absolutely able to find me because I'm the only one with that spelling. I'm pretty easy to track down, to be fair. Either of those is probably a good place to start. Uh, cool. You put a lot of information up on Twitter. So if you want to find a little bit more, especially around your research in this area, I definitely recommend listeners to go head to Twitter, find Steph's Twitter account and have a little scroll through. Perfect. Brilliant. Cool. That's amazing, Steph. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Bye. Speak soon. Thank you to Steph for coming on to the Progress Theory and talking about her work on the return to play from hamstring injuries. It was great to have the role of the hamstring fully described so you could understand how they can be susceptible to injury when exposed to sudden high forces when in a lengthened position. Hamstring strength is important, but the hamstrings are involved with so many human functions that rehabbing the hamstrings or preparing them for peak sporting performance is not as simple as just do a load of Nordic curls. Now I just wanted to provide some final thoughts on some key areas which really stood out for me. Firstly, it was really interesting to hear where hamstring injuries occur. Sprinting related hamstring injuries generally occur around the knee whereas hamstring injuries which occur more towards the hip are caused by a sudden slip or a reach. Understanding how the hamstrings tend to get injured is vital when planning a training program for the hamstrings. 
as then it can focus on developing the physical qualities needed to ensure that when the hamstring is exposed to a situation it could be injured in, it has the capacity to deal with the forces and the situation. And then secondly, I loved hearing her ideas around working on many physical qualities simultaneously post-hamstring injury and making training decisions based on how the athlete is tolerating the discomfort. Only focusing on one physical quality in training, such as isometric strength, before moving on to the next physical quality might mean the athlete misses an opportunity for development, or at least it gets certainly delayed. More of a conjugate approach, so working on multiple physical qualities simultaneously, is really growing in popularity in the SNC and rehab space. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode. To find more of our episodes, please head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, where you can download our podcasts or watch the full episode via our YouTube link. We will see you in the next one. Mm-hmm.